How has capitalism helped to create the modern family? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Steve Horwitz. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Steve Horowitz. Steve Horowitz is the Distinguished Professor of Free Enterprise in the Department of Economics in the Miller College of Business at Ball State University. He's the author of three books, including, most recently, one that will inform a lot of our discussion today, Hayek's Modern Family, Classical Liberalism, and the Evolution of Social Institutions. He has written extensively on Hayek and Austrian economics, monetary theory and history, and American economic history. Steve Horowitz, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, my pleasure to be here at, to not only a podcast that is brand new, but might have the coolest name of any podcast <laughs> in go. economics. So, you know, I, I know you guys, I know you guys were sort of, you know, trying to figure out the right one. I think you nailed it. Great. We're off to a great start then. Steve, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever dis- the discussion leads us. So let's get right into it. How has capitalism helped create the modern family? Well, uh, okay, we can go for the full hour on this one, but we won't. Um, I think there's a couple of ways that, that two, two key parts of capitalism help create the modern family. The first is the sort of development of the factory system and, and, and the idea that uh, one's work took place outside of one's home. So for all of human history, really up until the eight, eight, 19th century, 1800s, people, for the most part, worked in their homes. Either they were agricultural, right? The household was the fundamental economic unit, or they had sort of, you know, cottage industries. Think about things like uh, like like uh, smiths and things like that, that were, you know, part of the household, but not agriculture. So we've always had trade. We've always had property. We've always had those things. But what we didn't have until capitalism was this idea that that one's work took place outside of the home. And what this meant was, again, for all of human history, the the family was uh, a a unit of production and marriage was about combinations of productive human capital. You married someone because you could produce together. Right. And and that that's that was the key. Uh, Children were put to work early on and, and everyone in the household had a role in this sort of economic organization. Factory comes along and suddenly men and women and children early on are leaving the home to work. And and this separation of work and home begins to change the nature of the family. The family itself, the household really, is no longer the sort of core productive economic unit. In fact, it becomes the core consuming economic unit. Uh, and, And we see the nature of marriage and so on change as well. Right now, when we think about who do we marry? We think about people who share our tastes, right? Our, you know, read our same books, like to ski, like to eat the same food, right? It's complementarities in consumption, not production, mm-hmm. that, that that matter. So, so that was a key. That was a key transformation. Um, it also part of that was that it opened up the space for marriage to be about love for the first time in human history, right? Because before love was a luxury. Love was what you could afford to do if you didn't have to worry about producing, right? So rich people could marry for love, right? Um, they, they, they didn't, as a matter of fact, because often they were marrying for political partnerships as opposed to economic ones. Right? Love is what you had with your, your person on the side. But now, right now, you could open up that space for love and marriage transformed into, into the, more like the modern relationship that we, that we know now. So that's the first piece. <laughs> Second piece is that capitalism made us richer. 
and and it raised it raised wages. Uh, and as it raised wages, uh, originally right men, women, children working in factories, but slowly uh, the the children first, and then the women were able to go home. Not because we passed laws that said kids shouldn't be working. They went home because we, the, the income wasn't necessary anymore when men's and to some degree women's wages went up, uh, and and parents began to decide. Uh, we're going to use that income to spend on sort of fewer but better children. And one of the other things we saw happen as a result of this wealth is, and this is true across the world, as we see industrialization and urbanization, and these sorts of things, family size falls. People have fewer kids uh, when when capitalism begins to, to develop and work. And so there's a longer story we can talk about there that that increase in wealth, uh, the way that that increase in wealth played out, especially in terms of opportunities for women. But those are the two kind of key pieces of capitalism, the, the factory system working outside the home, and then, then the wealth that, that capitalism created, those really gave us the modern family. And we think of the modern family as being, you know, marriage, marriage for love, uh, respect for women, uh, and things like that, right? That, that, those, that those sorts of things uh, are, are there. One quick note, something we can talk about later too, that all of this also uh, made divorce more possible. Right. Mm. Uh, uh, Families got wealthier. Women got wealthier, more independent, certainly into the 20th century, more independently wealthy. And the expectations of marriage rose. Right. I mean, marriage now, man, you got to love each other like like, you know, like a dream. Right. And if you don't reach that standard, you know, you're 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 thinking we failed in the past. Love. Right. You know, Tina Turner question. What love? What's love got to do with it? Right. I mean, you know, are we are we getting along? Are we producing? Are we making a profit? That was the question. Right. Right. Love. So, and I was just going to say that I think one part we should certainly get into here is what people view as the, quote, traditional family. It struck me as I was reading yeah. uh, parts of your book on this one and also a great article called uh, Capitalism, the Family that's posted on Foundation for Economic Education that people often think of. Well, I guess the idea of the traditional family is actually a misnomer, right? If people yeah. put their idea of the traditional family of what was seen right after World War II in the, in the 50s and 60s, they're missing a whole piece of, of history, which is what, what you yes. just touched on. That was yes. when even like uh, people were living as, quite frankly, serfs or under, under a feudal system, how right. the family was ultimately, like as you said, this, this economic unit. Uh, yep. And that, that, that would be, uh, for a lot of history, what the traditional family actually was, is, is what, what you went over in the book. So I thought that was very interesting, that that yeah. definition is, is a little troublesome. Yep. And, and it's interesting. Two things are interesting. One, it, that, you know, if, if anything deserves the name traditional, it's that sort of, you know, the farm family, right, story that, that we're telling. But what's also interesting is why that 50s family became the archetype of the traditional family. And that certainly has everything to do with media and TV and so on. Right. That that's that's the image that was projected at the time. Right. Of of what of what the family was. And we all just sort of assume, well, it's that's what it is. That's what it was. I just one thing I like to point out about those TV families in the 50s. That's that's a bit of an irony. Right. Here were all these these TV families where mom was the classic stay at home mom. Right. Right. You know, vacuuming and pearls and all that, that kind of stuff. Right. But all of those actresses were working mothers, right? Barbara <laughs> Billingsley was a working mom right. when she was doing Leave it to Beaver. Who was taking care of her kids, right? So the show itself undermined its own stereotype when you sort of think about it a little bit differently, right? Uh, and those were some, and some of those women were, were you know, were, were sort of 
powerful women in, in the TV. Industry. Right. I, I like the thought of, of the professional woman getting up every morning, having her coffee, getting ready to go to work, yeah. getting in the car, going to a TV studio and playing a stay at home mom. Yeah, and, and the perfect, perception right. that was sort of given is, oh, she's a stay at home mom. That kind of put it into people's psyche that way. But in reality, this is a working woman. Yes. Yes. Well, that's great. That's a great way. That's a great way to think about it. And that sort of ties into other things you talk about in your book as well, which is you say that a, a lot of people, uh, these these may be people that have a, a favorable uh, look on the traditional family or they're, they're ultimately a, a conservative in that social sense that they think that the traditional family from the 50s and 60s is something that we should either go back to or, or that that was the the top notch uh, ideal. Uh, you you say that they often mistake uh, laws that were passed. You mentioned no fault divorce, things like that. Uh, they, or uh, you know, even if you go back far enough, like like w- women getting the vote. Like these are the milestones in, in history that we should really be looking at. Is, is this is what they think? Wh- where we see how the family unit has changed. But in reality, uh, as you read your book, as we read your book, you, we we see that it's actually just the economic arrangements that are driving most of this. That's not to say that the the, the political victories or changes aren't important at all. But but there's certainly we're not the main driving factor. Right. And, and, and I think one of the things to think about here is, is certainly ideas matter, right? I mean, we, right. you know, the, the, well, we'll, let me come back to that. Let me go down first. I, I think that, that the, the oftentimes the political, the political changes are important, but they trail the economic changes at some level. For example, you can't abolish child labor if parents need those kids income to work, they're going to find ways around it, or they're going to be way worse off. So at some level the 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 ability to make political change can only happen when the problem when the thing you want to get rid of has already been is already not necessary for most of the population right mm. all right and by the way the other thing i'd add to that are, are are things like violence against women which if you look at the statistics is way down compared to 50 or 100 or 150 years ago and we don't tolerate I and mean, we just don't have socially morally we just cannot tolerate it so when it happens you know we're we're rightly outraged by it and we get things like you know, and we get things like Me Too and all of this, but that's because we've come to a point where where we've we've you know eliminated all the the low hanging fruit, right? The, the rape is no longer the sort of systematic tool. I want to be careful. This is a systematic tool of oppression of conquerors and so on that it was, but mm-hmm. much less of that. It happens, no doubt, right? Same, you know, and same with violence, you know, spousal violence and things like that. It, of course, it happens, but but it was hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, it was completely, you know, it was much bigger problem. So we get down to the end, right? We rightly, rightly get more outraged by the remaining bits of it that we see. And, and it wasn't that it was more prevalent at the time either. It was also looked looked at as accepted. This is this is yes, what right. happened. That's right. This was a, yes, this was right. a woman's lot in life, I guess. That that's yes. what the, the view yeah. was and, at the time. And, they, and women accepted that too, right? right? That's the other important part, right? Until you know, so again, changes in ideas matter, right? And when we see, I mean, some of those changes in ideas are independent, but some are driven by the economics, as you say. So so for example, Right when we see uh, a couple things in the late 19th century, right when women are going back to the home, out of factories back to the home, when when they when marriage is for love, when women are are given what you know is perceived to be the the, the equal responsibility of the of the private sphere wasn't really equal, but sort of perceived to be equal. And suddenly, the way in which men had to treat their wives was different. They they couldn't treat them as employees and pieces on a chessboard and whatever, mm-hmm. right? 
they they had professed their love for them, and then you're going to come home and beat them, right? And and this is the person who's taking care of your kids and doing right. So so those things begin changing. We see that change happening, like in literature and so on. The way in which that behavior is represented begins to change, and and those those that's important. And then the law eventually follows, and and and, and the legal changes matter. They when it beco- when the legal system and the political system speaks, right? Again, that 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 matters. So, but ultimately, you view that as it's ultimately a lagging indicator. Is what you're saying? The yeah, right. I think, right. I think that's a fair way to put it. And saying it's a lagging indicator doesn't mean it doesn't help, right? It just right. lags. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, exactly. We, we glossed over it a bit at the start, uh, but I want to kind of get back into it. You talked about the separation of of work and home. Uh, hundreds of years ago, work was home, and and I'd like you to get into that a little bit more because although it sounds like something that people might just nod their heads at, oh yeah, of course, like we used to have a farm, whatever. Like I think this. When I was reading this part of your book, I, I was, I had to put it down for a second. Go, holy, holy shit! Like I actually have to think about this for a sec. Like that is a huge thing. It's not something that you right. can just. It's not just. Oh yeah, somebody left for work one morning. This was a big change. The the yes. home wasn't just. Oh, you happen to you know pick your own vegetables and and cook what you had, and that's it. Like it it literally was work. Like that's you lived and breathed your home life as work. And one of the ways that we know that, of course, is one of the remnants we have of that are last names, right? If your last name was Farmer oh, right, or right. Smith, right? Right. And all that kind of, so we know, right, that people's work was, was, was tied up with their family, with their household. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, I think today in the sort of developed West, unless you're really living in a sort of, you know, really in, in have the agricultural life, you don't really appreciate this. And and as you say, you know, for those of us who, who don't, who, who are in that other places, right? We, we, it is striking to sort of think what, what would that, what does that really mean? Right. When you are, when what binds your family together is, is the work and also consider, right. That those families sometimes were taking in borders. They had extended family living there. Right. I mean, you had a whole, you know, uh, sort of, <laughs> you had a firm basically, right. You, you had this production unit, um, and, and that you were, again, as you say, growing a lot of food and jarring and canning a lot of food yourself. People still traded for things, of course, but, but sort of that, that, that autarky is a strong word, but that self, that sort of, uh, uh, you know, being, re- being responsible for most of the things you consumed yourself, right. Was, a, was a very much different than today. And, and, you know, today we, we, almost everything we can't we can't do anything ourselves right i can't sew a shirt of it right? we're, we're getting everything from the outside right right uh in in ways that that have transformed and and again going to work means what about the kids right who's taking care of the kids now suddenly we have this problem i mean with agricultural families or other sort of you know uh, early families there were always people around to take care of the kids including by the way the older children if they weren't going to school right so um, so now the sort of whole question of childcare becomes an issue and we solve it first. Women largely stay at home, but, but in our own time, right, women get drawn into the labor force, the wages, their opportunity cost of staying at home becomes too high. They, they can earn those wages. And now families have the funds to afford to pay someone to outsource the daycare. Right. So, right. so, you know, all of those things. And, and I think, you know, one of the ways I, I put it, I think it's in the book, but it's certainly some other things I've written, right. Is that, that interestingly, we, we pushed the economic functions of the family out into the world in this way, right? The production related ones. And so what filled the space, what filled the space was our expect, our emotional and, and affectational, you know, psychological expectations of what, what marriage and family would be about. Now, when we think of marriage and family, right, we have that sort of, you know, 
glossy Victorian, you know, this is all, it's all about love and caring. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not being facetious, right? I mean, I think that's really important. And so one of the ways to look at this is that, that what capitalism did, critics of capitalism would, might argue that it made the family into this rational calculating, whatever, but that's, that's completely backward, right? That's what it was before capitalism. It was right. about to use McCloskey's terms, Dieter McCloskey's terms, prudence, right? It was about, right. But I mean, you can think of, uh, 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 you know, uh, Mary Poppins has some of this in it. Right. And, and, and all I said that it was all about, you know, sort of formal prudence. But what happens with these changes is, is that it becomes about love. It becomes about other virtues, right. In ways that, that I think are great and awesome that they've had, you know, they, they've brought other consequences in their trail, but the, but the, the, the sort of family post-capitalism is a much, much more enjoyable place to be for all parties concerned, with the possible exception of male heads of households, but even then, I mean, they lost some power, right? But they gained a lot of material well-being and and a lot of emotional satisfaction. Right, right. And I think in the book you say that it's that this isn't to say that that love never existed in family history, right, but it's that's that, right. uh, I think you said something like, um, "But capitalism inverted love and prudence." That's what you said. Yeah, I think that's that was right. a very interesting way way to put it. Yeah, and 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 the love that one could express in those early families was always tempered by the the sort of realities, the economic and political realities. So look, there's no doubt parents love their kids, but when half of your kids are dying, you know, before they reach to adulthood, the nature of that love and 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 is going to be different because you just know that you're not going to be able to see them through in ways. And I also think that that the the ability to express that love, of course, is is constrained by the material resources, right? So, so you can't give your kids the schooling you want. You can't feed them the way you might like to, right? All of those are the ways today we think of expressing love for our kids, right? For me, you know, being, you know, buying my kids stuff they like at the grocery store is an act of love, right? right? And, and, and sort of not being able to do that as easily and as well and whatever, right? That makes it harder to express that love. And so we, so we're in a place where, where, where the, the you know having the material resources enables us to love in a deeper, richer way. Right, and and I think you you go into this into the book as well. You, you talk about how the roles that people took up in, when the the home was about work, like let's say hundreds of years ago, a few hundred years ago, uh, it was very interesting that the the fact that home was work necessarily created a situation where children, for instance, as you were saying, uh, weren't just these other human beings that you love. They were necessarily, for instance, extra farmhands. So if you, if you yes. lost a child, yes, of course, that, that would hurt in, in one sense. But as well, uh, you literally had to think of the fact, oh, we, we just had an accident with the plow or something. We just literally lost two employees effectively. Right, and, that's right. And, we, right. and it wasn't out of evilness that, right. in air right. quotes, yeah. that people thought this way. It was just necessity. These were the economic arrangements right no you're right we I mean we we lost an asset right? right if your kid died you know from disease at age three we lost a, a asset a potential asset right and and it you know as i when i give the i do talk on college campuses on this stuff and one of the things i say is is right uh you know you needed labor on, 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 in those farm families. Right. And the easiest way to get labor was to make it yourself. It's cheaper and it's a lot more fun. Right. <laughs> right, and, right. Right. I mean, so, so, but that came with risk and risk to the mother. We should know too. I mean, death, death and childbirth, of course, was, was a huge problem. And, and we think about, I mean, at the time we, we think of single parent families today and we, and all the debates over that, and usually we were thinking of it in the context of divorce, but but for much of human history, single parent families were actually quite common. 
death of the mom in childbirth, death of the father at work. Right. I mean, you know, so as you say, you get run over by the by the horses or something like that. I mean, it ha- you know, happened all the time, um, even with mechanization. So th- those, you know, there there were plenty of single parent families at the time, though, from death, not not divorce. Right. And and when it comes to, to the role of, of the male in the family, those who look at potentially what they call the traditional family uh, in quotes of the 50s and 60s, they they look at the ideal as as for, for, as an example, the male would go out to work, you know, uh, bring home the money. They would be the head of the family for a variety of reasons. They would make decisions that way. But when it came to a, a few hundred years ago, this was uh, like this because of necessity. They weren't just making decisions about, quote, the family. They, As you said, they were running a business. These were economic decisions they were making. So it wasn't that they were just naturally in charge of, quote, the family. They were also necessarily in charge of the business of running a family, which is, a, is an important distinction, I think. Yes, it is. But it's also important to remember that that legally at that time they were, I mean, they, they had the legal right to make those decisions, right? right? When we think about things like coverture where, where women could not, married women could not, you know, sign contracts, could not, uh, had, had very few rights against their, against their husbands, right? There was just, if, if a man made a decision, that was it done period. And there was no legal recourse for women to, 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 to respond. Even some of the remnants of those laws lasted into the 20th mm-hmm. century, into the forties, fifties and sixties, for example, uh, uh, if it, it married couple man got a job, decided to move, right? I mean, the, there was no sort of legal recourse for the woman to say, I don't want to do this, right? right. And and also, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember the details, credit was linked in that way too. You, women who applied for credit couldn't do it without their husband's approval. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that that lasted into the 20th century. Oh, right. I mean, if, if you compare today's status of women versus then i mean you it's yeah. it, just that contrast you can barely say that hundreds of years ago they were anything close to a legal individual that that's a that's a massive problem obviously yeah yeah so the the change of marriage itself as an institution over time we talked about the family structure in general uh, let's get a bit a little more into you and you touched on it before but let's get deeper into why people marry and how that slowly changed so obviously this wasn't just like an on off switch one day one day we all right. woke up and we said hey uh, we get married for love it was it was a slow prog- progression over time and i find that that very interesting that the marriage had a, a, a functional component to it and in, in some ways it, it still does but at the time obviously massively and then as you said that the way as economic arrangements changed um, and people went out to work and in the, the senses of individualism sort of set in the idea of marriage yeah. itself changed as well. So so I think the important thing to start with is to recognize that there's sort of two dimensions to marriage. There's con- the question of consent and then the question of why you're marrying the person, right? So people tend to run those together sometimes. So there, there, there is, of course, a long history of arranged marriages in the Western world, right? And oftentimes by the wealthy, but even by the less wealthy, right? Um, trying to trying to ensure that your children married the right person was really important, right? For if you're struggling on the margins, right? You wanted to make sure that, you know, I, again, in that talk I give, I say, you know, today we look at a member, you know, a heterosexual male might look at a woman and say, wow, she's, you know, she's, she's gorgeous or she's, or she, uh, uh, she likes the same things I look right. And like, and, 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 you know, a couple hundred years ago, so look at those hips, those hips will produce some kids or, or look at those shoulders. She can push a plow. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but those were the, those were the things that mattered. So, so, you know, you can understand why there would be arranged marriages, but even without arranged marriages, right. 
by the time we're talking into the you know Middle Ages and so on, marriage is and the church played a role here. Marriage is largely consensual, right? Um, sometimes parents would exercise some power, but you could you could more or less marry who you wanted to. But the reason you wanted to marry them wasn't because you fell in love with them in the way we think about that now. I mean, so many movies play this out, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, if you've ever seen it, you know, she says, do you, after 25 years of marriage, do you love him? Right. And she says, well, I, you know, I learned to love him. Right. Hmm. Right. You didn't marry for love, but you learned to love him. My favorite actually is Big Fat Greek Wedding, which you've ever seen. So yes, I've, I've seen that. Love it. <laughs> right. Because it's right on this point. Right. Right. You know, the, my favorite scene in that movie is when 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 the lead character is sitting with her mom and, and talking about, you know, marrying Ian Miller, right? And 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 uh, and, and uh, uh, she's talking about how much she loves him and and the mom says says, Oh, Tula, eat something, right? Like you're like you're being silly, right? You're you're being silly. Some of that, by the way, in 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 Moonstruck too, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's not it's not so much this. It's this great scene where where uh, where where Olympia Dukakis says to share shares uh, says, says do you love him about Nick, you know, Nick? And she says, and, and she says, yeah, Ma, I love him. And, and the guy goes, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> like, you know, so, so, I mean, it, there, this tension is there, right? Uh, uh, through, throughout this, the, you know, we see in the film in films all the time. What, what happened was that again, that, that love was right. People understood love and, and we have all these great love poetry, but it's often not about the person you're married to, right? Right, because that was the you couldn't afford that luxury with them. You could with another person who you weren't married to, right? Right, you could love them in that in that romantic way. What what capitalism did slowly, as you point out, right? Sort of starting in the kind of upper middle class and working its way down was to enable people to marry for love for the first time, um, and 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 again, it did so. By taking away the economic constraints of having to produce with the person, and and letting you indulge the sentiments in in that way, um, and it happens slowly, uh, and really, you know, it takes until the 20th century to sort of permeate all the way down, and still today, right? I mean, there's you know places even I think in developed world pockets anyway where where you know more prudential decisions about marriage tend to tend to dominate. I don't know if you want to get to this this soon or we can wait but but this the 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 historian of marriage stephanie Kuntz says this was the revolutionary moment in the history of marriage when marriage became about love you know people want to talk today about same-sex marriage being revolutionary and what Kuntz says it's not right once marriage became about love and once uh the, there's some other things we can talk about that were in place but certainly once marriage became about love Everything that's happened since, higher divorce rates, same-sex marriage, all those other things are a unfurling, a playing out of, of what it means to marry for love. It was that period, that transformational period where it became about love that was the real revolution in marriage. And I think that's right. And I think the sort of sooner we recognize that, the better. And there's an irony there, right? Because we, we hear most often, I think, from social conservatives about how, you know, how important marriage and love and all and, and all of those things are. Yet again, that's not the way marriage was right. for most of human history. Um, and second, it's that very shift that opened up the possibility of many of the things that social conservatives find so troubling, right? From from higher divorce rates to same-sex marriage, all these sorts of things. And uh, I think that's a great place to leave it off. We'll, we'll pick it right back up great. after that. I'm talking with Steve Horowitz here on The Curious Task.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm talking with Steve Horowitz here on The Curious Task. Steve, before the break, we were talking about how, how marriage changed throughout the years, decades, centuries, um, and how, how now capitalism slowly changed that. It, it occurred to me as we were talking, it's very funny, it'd be very hard for someone today to picture how uh, someone today who's marrying for love or, or has that as a priority would picture how hundreds of years ago, this wasn't even even an individual decision in some cases. In your book, you also mentioned how it could be communities got involved and what marriages yep. should happen and, and how they benefit. So that that's a big difference when on the one hand on one extreme you have community decisions for marriages and and doing it for the benefit of a collective or or at least the family unit versus now where an individual can say i I love that person i'd like to marry them take us through that transformation Uh, you pick up where you left off before the break yeah yeah uh i i think i think that human beings want to be with people they love right i mean we we, you know given your druthers would you rather spend your lifetime with someone you at least believe at the start you're in love with, uh, as opposed to someone, you know, you, you got to run the farm with. So I think when this transformation started, and, and, and we know that, right, because we see again, all this sort of on the side love poetry, right. That, that where people's emotional, uh, joy, right. At being in this, in this state was, was clear, but sort of fusing that to marriage, right. Wasn't possible at the time. And when it became possible, I think people really, really, took to it. It wasn't a hard transformation for people to make. It's hard for us to look back and, as you say, understand what what it was like not to marry for love. That's a lot harder, right? I think that's, by the way, I think that's a truth of progress. It's always mm. harder for us in the present to, fig- to figure out why people did things the way they did in the past than it would be for them to imagine the future. I mean, a future where, where my teeth don't hurt all the time? Bring it on, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. So, so, so at that so I think that's that's part of it. People were were. I mean, no one could see the, no one could see the consequences. And it's worth noting too that that you know every time one of these things about marriage changed, the 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 chicken little said the sky was falling. Right. I right. mean, when marriage became about love, and they were right about some things. Right. People said, oh, the divorce rates are going to go up. The family, but the family's going to collapse. Right. And then when women started working, the family's going to collapse. Right. But it hasn't collapsed. It's changed. It's evolved uh, to the degree that we see significant problems with the family. Many of them, not all, but many of them are due to misguided policy and so on. But, but, you know, I think we, we, we've largely met that, that transformation has been so important and, and the transformation to marriage for love along with the increased wealth of capitalism has improved women's lives dramatically. Uh, the ability to exit bad marriages, uh, is really, really important. Right. And and some people look at, at an increasing divorce rate as just a bad thing on its own for the institution of marriage. But another way of looking at it, dare I say, is that people are ex, are able to uh, satisfy their preferences, right? It is yeah. okay if you marry someone for 10 years and if at the end of it you don't like each other or something's changed, yeah. that you can right. exit that arrangement instead of being bound to it. That's right. I think the one caveat to put in there, of course, is that the decision to divorce has third party effects on children, right? Right. Excellent point. So, 
you know, for childless couples, divorce is, is nothing, right? But, but if you have kids, it, you know, it, it matters. Um, and I think what we miss sometimes, I mean, we, we live in this, uh, if you know the Simpsons, we're all living in Helen Lovejoy's world, right? Where what about the children? Every time something happens, what about the children? What about the children? And, and, and again, we, ha- we should ask that question. But we also have to recognize that adults matter too. And that adults, you know, trapped in loveless, bad marriages, uh, their needs matter when we think about divorce. And even if the divorce has consequences for kids, unpleasant consequences for kids, one of the things we know from the literature is the worst thing you can do to kids is expose them to constant conflict. Right. So if the marriage is a high conflict marriage, sticking with the marriage isn't helping kids, it's hurting them. And getting them out, if that will reduce the conflict between their parents by getting by, you know, by by ending the marriage, right, do it. I mean, I have a, you know, uh, one of the things people sometimes say about divorce is we became better parents when we got divorced, hmm. right? Because we were out of each other's faces in a way that that was harming the kids, right? And now we can, you know, I don't have to be with this person all the time. It's, it's not going to be perfect necessarily, but you'll be better. Right. Right. Well, better being apart. So, again, I think th- those are some important things. And as I said earlier, the other thing is marriage for love just raised the stakes. Right. I mean, it may it, it it made our expectations of marriage much greater than before. If you ask your grandparents right about divorce and marriage and so on, they just can't comprehend in some sense why people would leave a marriage because you didn't love each other enough. Right. That's not why sort of you got married and stayed together. It seems even to our grandparents, right? It right. Seems perhaps somewhat frivolous, right? It's one component of the marriage, if you're lucky, sort of thing. But here's all this other stuff you should be worried about instead. That's right. That's right. We we raised you or your parents anyway, right? Right. So I mean, I, I and and I I get that, right? I mean, and I don't think it's completely wrong either. Uh, but but there's no it, it, what capitalism did is made it possible for people not have to mostly women, but men too, to not have to suffer with unhappiness in marriages in ways that, that I think were, you know, are, are beneficial. We just have to be really, really careful in thinking about how we design policy and divorce law and so on to make sure that the impact on kids is, is minimized. They are innocent victims in this. And so, you know, if, if, if harm is going to come to them in some way, shape or form, we need to make sure that, that whatever goods being produced is greater than that harm. And you touched on the role the role of children uh, twice re- real quickly, so I, I want to get into that a bit more. Um, in your book, well, actually, maybe first I should say that I, I do find it personally very interesting that the people who, um, in my experience, often complain that perhaps children are too sheltered these days or, you know, people talk about helicopter parents and bubble wrap kids and stuff. And to a degree, that there's a lot of that. But these are often people that idealize the 1950s and 60s, quote, traditional family, as they term it, when if you read your book, we realize that the, the, quote, sheltered childhood is actually part of that equation. The idea that dad could go out to work and come back and the children were were something you put love into instead of putting to work. This was actually part of that, what they term the traditional family structure. That's very interesting how the role we've talked about men and women, but the role of children over time has changed a lot as well. Yeah. And so, as you say, you know, the, the, the most important transformation there is that families became you know, uh, fewer kids and more investment in the kids that they had, right? That we, we, that we didn't need as many kids and we had the resources to invest in the ones we had. And we recognized that when adult wages, male wages were high enough, 
we could keep mom at, and the kids at home and sort of create this, this sh- again, as you say, the sheltered childhood, um, which was basically sheltering them from the world of work and adult responsibilities and enabling them to get educated. I think it, you know, I think there's a long leap from there to the helicopter parenting type stuff that we are rightly concerned about today. And I've written some on that uh, as well. There's some in the book and I've written some other stuff on that too. And I think that that is just, uh, uh, we, we've sort of climbed up the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Right. Right. And, and, and we have these kids who we've been told everything that happens to them is about the choices we make as parents, which is just wrong, by the way. Uh, and so, you know, we live vicariously through them. My my bumper sticker, my child is an honor student at so-and-so school. <laughs> right. Like, why? Right. Why? Right. Why? <laughs> right. Um, so, so all, you know, all of those things have helped create this, this world that we're now concerned about, right? Where, where parents are trying to bail their kids out all the time and, and, and all this. And, and I think that's a problem, problem for a whole bunch of reasons. I think the biggest part of that problem is we are raising too many kids who are unable to solve their own problems, who are not used to having to uh, uh, evolve rules and norms uh, for, for playing with each other, to, to enforce those norms. I mean, think of the difference between a pickup baseball game and little league, right? Right. Uh, and, and sort of problem solving conflicts with other kids, other people is a huge skill. One needs to be a citizen of a democratic country. Right. And it's, you know, it were it, to the degree that we prevent kids from doing that. That's a problem to the right. degree that we don't allow kids to take any risks. And when they do fail, we, we bail, we bail them out, right? Um, you know, e- either we're going to get kids who don't want to take any risk at all, or who will take every risk, thinking they're going to be bailed out. Mm. And and either one of those is a bad outcome. So, uh, again, you know, people sometimes accuse me of telling too rosy of a story of the evolution of the family, and there's some truth to that because I think we often tell a story that's that's too dark. So I'm sort of balancing that, but I do think there are real issues here. Uh, I think real issues around uh, parenting and, and 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 kids, especially. Uh, for those of us who believe in the liberal society, we, we want kids who can solve their own problems and don't have to call in authorities and don't have to use coercion. We want kids who understand risk and will, would be good entrepreneurs. I mean, those are all things we value in a liberal society. Um, and if we're parenting that out of kids, that's a problem. So the capitalism and its progress o- over the past many, many decades has created a situation where kids don't necessarily need to be a farmhand. But on the other hand, as you're saying, we have to watch out that it doesn't go too far the other way, that they're, they're too sheltered. It's not that they're just yeah. sheltered, sheltered from having to, to to work an ox plow, but they're in fact sheltered from, as you said, basic uh, social skills. That's also too far right. on the other end. So. I, I have the quote in the book somewhere, but Stephen Pinker in his earlier book on violence wrote something like the... Uh, the 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 overvaluation of children has reached its decadent phase, hmm. right? And that's I think that's a really nice way to put it. I'm, it's not exact quite the exact quote, but but it is. You know that's that's what we've had happen here, right? Is that we're we're we we've sort of overdone it. And and Lenore Skenazy's sort of free range kids book was the first of the reactions. There's been some others too, but that was the first of the reactions. And 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 that book is so good precisely because she gets the fact. That that you you know you got to stop thinking like like a lawyer, right? I, I actually wrote and said 
So you got to stop thinking like a lawyer is right. And you got to start thinking like an economist, right? And sort of think about trade-offs with risk and reward and all these sorts of things. There are a lot of people who consider everything we've been talking about and the different changes in family dynamic and as ultimately a bad thing. They think we're heading down on net a bad path. What I grab from the book and the things you've written about this is that from, from your value judgment, do you think that ultimately uh, we see a, a, a better state of affairs today and as a matter of fact, a, a more liberal one, classical liberal one, that is to say, like when we get to the ideas of individualism and uh, and, and uh, spontaneous order between individuals and things like that, that where capitalism has brought us today is actually better if you're coming from that perspective rather than what we had before. It's absolutely true. We have a lot more choice and freedom uh, in the decisions we make about the families we form uh, and families we decide to break up. And, and, and I mean, all of those things from who we marry to... To, to how we arrange our lives economically as a married couple to to uh, to how many kids we have and to, I mean I mean sort of all those things and now when we think about the things like same sex marriage right the the you know more options have opened up there's a wonderful book from the 90s called Families We Choose which sort of deals with with a lot of these issues um, and and you know now we're going to see I think more of this kind of talk so in that sense we are much more. What, what, what the economic changes did was produce a great more cultural and social freedom. And that's, that's the liberal right. It's that dynamic, that dialectic between the, the, the market and the culture uh, that I think defines the liberal outlook, right? That we don't, we see the, those freedoms as being seamless, or at least they should be seamless in a way that I think left and right don't. And so it's unsurprising when, when you know, we look at these changes in the family that a, that a classical liberal would look at and go, yeah, right. I mean, look what's happened. We, we, we gave people more economic freedom uh, that enabled them to do all these things that, uh, that has fed back to give people a great deal more social freedom and that those two things are connected. And, you know, from the perspective of the conservatives, right, you, uh, you say that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Those cultural changes have happened. You're not going to get rid of same-sex marriage. You're not going to bring divorce back. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Um, uh, and, and, you know, if you really, if, if conservatives really like capitalism, and these days it's apparent that they actually don't, but let's assume for a moment that they do, right, uh, you know, you have to think carefully about what the, about those social changes and, why, and how they're connected. On the other hand, you can look at the left and who, who celebrates those social changes, rightly so, but not enough of them are willing to give the full marks to the to capitalism and to economic change and growth and markets uh, and the dynamics of markets as being the, the cause of that. And and if you close off the the, the 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 sort of economic forces if you if you regulate capitalism and, and that growth and that and that dynamism out of existence you are going to harm the possibilities on the social side so you need both and that and that's why you know I think that's the if my book has a has a kind of major that contribution there's maybe more than one but certainly one of them I hope is trying to sew those two parts back together and, and sh show that from a classical liberal perspective, those things are inseparable and, and it's important to value both of them and that the history tells us that they've come, they, they have been part of that same process in the way we've been talking about and that we should value them as such. And I, I think the idea that uh, what exactly a family is and how that changes o over the next many years is very interesting as well. Hundreds of years ago when talking to your neighbor might have required walking a few miles, um, 
um, yeah. is, is one thing. But today we, we get online, we can talk to whoever we want. People are feeling like they're very close to and, and would call uh, people family. These could be people that they never met. These could be just people that they talk to on an ongoing basis, people they trust. It's, so it's very interesting what people can consider family when you remove it from the idea that it has to be have some sort of uh, household economic function. That's very interesting as well, the different forms of family. Yeah, I think I agree. I do think we want to be we want to be a little careful there because, you know, historically we've used uh, the concept sociologists would call fict- and fictive kin, right? We say he's like a brother to me, right? Mm. He, or you know, we call people an, an aunt who's really not, but but has taken care of us. And and you know, there's there's good things about that, and for just the reasons you're talking about. But I do think there, you know, there will always be a legal sort of circle around what constitutes family, right? Where some are on the inside and some are on the outside. And so when we when we get into those fictive metaphorical uses of family, right, which is great. And, and, and as you say, I think is much easier to do in this day and age. But at the same time, we have to remember that, well, okay, but you're still not family in some sort of legal sense. And I think the question of legally who one's family is, legally who one's parents are, right, in a world of, 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 of artificial or, you know, artificial insemination and all these other techniques we have, right, for creating kids, you can I mean, you can tell a story where a kid has perhaps up to eight people who could lay claim to parenthood, mm. right? So thinking that through, I think one of the most important things we're going to see, and I talk some about this in the book, I think, but certainly in some other places, is uh, unbundling parental rights. The, the problem with divorce right now is only in, in most jurisdictions, only two people can lay claim to parental rights. So, so I, I, you know, I'm, my wife and I are both in our second marriages and her two kids from her first marriage live with us, you know, the majority of the time. Uh, and the question of what are my rights as a step parent is an interesting one. You know, mm. I can sign some things like school stuff. Nobody really cares. And, but I don't have any legal rights over those kids at all. Maybe I shouldn't. But we can imagine. But but part of the problem is is that we, we that that we think of parental rights as being all of these things, and we don't want to give me all of those things. I shouldn't have all of those things. But maybe there's some of them I should have. But by I, I mean you know, the step parent should have right. uh, that that the uh, step parent who who is has you know primary household you know sort of primary care right. Uh, maybe I should right. But but the law doesn't really allow that right. We don't. The, the sort of world in which there are three people who have varying claims to different parental rights seems like it makes sense, though it would be complicated, right? And so I think this is a problem we have to solve like in a mm-hmm. world of divorce and remarriage and so on. Um, how do we ensure how do we ensure that the people who are functioning day to day as the child's parents, have the rights that they need to be able to do that most effectively, right? Without taking rights away from the non, from the you know the parent who has them less, right? I don't want to I don't want to take any rights away from my stepkid's biological father, right? He should have all of the rights that he wants. But is there a way to not think of those as a sort of zero sum game, right? And say, can we can we expand this so that and he has a he is now engaged to be married. And so that's, there will be more here, right? So, so how do you sort this out? Um, especially where you have kids who are, you know, living in two branch offices of the same extended family, uh, thinking there's, there's some really interesting questions here, I think that need to be thought through. 
Right, as you said, as as the, the the quote modern family changes and what that looks like, the law and and the framework around that needs to change as that's well. Right. Some strict traditionalists might say, "Well, if you're not if you're not blood related, that's the end of the story." But in reality, it's not. Families are tons of different shapes and sizes now. Right, so. and and my favorite response to the family family should be about blood thing is, including the person you marry. <laughs> right, every we we form families with people who are not blood related to. Right, right? that's. Wait a second, you know. So, so okay. What do you? What exactly do you mean here? And do you really mean to say that adoptive kids, right, uh, and stepkids are not really? I mean, what you know? What does that really mean? Uh, and and I, you know, I, I think I know what they're trying to say. Uh, it's it's not always good. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how that kind of train of thought does tie back to some really old ways of thinking, especially religious one, because I think you did mention in your book that there's a lot of things the church allowed you to do at a certain time, but but they weren't very keen on the idea of people adopting children. And that, right. that was an interesting part of, of history as well. Yeah. And well, right. And the, the church had its own had its own interests here because it what it went, it, it, it wanted the, the advantage of childless families in the old days was that there was no heir. And so the property mm. of the married couple could would frequently revert to the church. Oh, isn't that convenient, right? So, so yeah. Uh, so we do have to, you know, institutions had their interests at stake when they. Another example from the book of this same sort of thing was right. These laws that said said you couldn't marry anyone, you know, cl- anyone closer than your fifth cousin or something like that. How do you know who your fifth cousin is, right? <laughs> and so, so you, you know, you you go to the church, right, and say to get a ruling is, can I marry this person? And now what you've done by creating this ambiguous sort of vague rule is law. In fact, that you've given the power over to those who enforce the law to do it with, to, with arbitrary discretion. Right. So, you know, you could, you could pay a tribute or you could just know someone and they'd say, Oh sure. You can marry that person without even, you know, whatever. on the other hand, if you weren't in the good graces of the church, the answer was going to be no, because there's no way to answer that question. Right. It would, you know, clearly at the time. So again, the, the history of marriage is also bound up with the history of, and then sort of all these family things bound up with the power of the institutions who had rights to decide about them, like the church and, and the degree to the church and state were, were not, we couldn't disentangle them for many centuries. Right. The, that combination was particularly important. Do you feel that um, classical liberals and, and libertarians, pe- people on, on that side of the, fen- the fence, if you will, do you, do you think that they've been a little too hyper-focused on things like the market and the state, that they, they, they don't really stop to think of the nuances of, of how things like civil liberties and trade and, and family, like we've been talking today, have been affected by, by the gradual changes of, of a mostly liberal state of economics and a system or are, are, are we a little too focused on like like i was saying uh market's good uh, state bad that, that we don't really stop and see some of the great benefits uh like, like uh, it's like some of the ones we covered in this conversation today uh, of a liberalized style of, of economics things like that i think that's right it's understandable it was certainly understandable uh in a period where where sort of state socialism was re- you know dominating the world at one point two-thirds of the world lived under nominally marxist regimes right you can understand why libertarians would would say market versus state it also explains why libertarians were so quick to to align with folks on the right right because the the big on that issue they agreed okay but you know in, in the post 1989 1991 world you know we don't have that that hard state socialism except in three or four countries even the so-called democratic socialists 
you know, these days and the revival of so-called socialism is not anything like that. I mean, it's bad. It's a problem, but it's anything like that. So, right. so, so the market versus the state clearly was the dominating binary for a long time, but, but we should be beyond that now. And I do think we've seen more classical liberal work looking at civil society, right? Looking at the other kinds of places. I think this is one explanation for the interest in the work of, of Lynn and Vincent Ostrom, because this is precisely what they're interested in, is sort of things that don't quite fit in either of those two categories. The family doesn't fit in either of those two categories. Um, for me, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the family is, is that I think there's some really difficult questions for libertarians there. I think that you know, we haven't talked about it, and I'm not sure we, we can do it justice in the time we have left, but but certainly the question of children's rights, right? And so the, the, the sort of classic case like the, the parents who are whose religious beliefs mean that they will refuse medical treatment for a sick child. Do right. parents have the right to do that? Is that a legitimate exercise of parental rights and stewardship and guardianship? Or, uh, or do children have a, a sort of right to life that overrides the wishes of those parents in those cases? It's not, I think that's, I mean, it, the answer may be obvious to some libertarians. It's not obvious to me, right? And it's not obvious because I worry about, you know, when we say, well, okay, we have to force the parents to do X for their kids. How do we not, you know, what, is there a slippery slope problem there we want to be careful about? And does it matter what the parents' intent are? If the parents think that the thing that they're doing is genuinely the right way to help their kids, that makes that decision tougher. On the other hand, right, we, we, we you know, children are not the mere playthings of their parents. Um, and, and sort of figuring out where that line is and at what point, right, do we say, this is a decision you don't get to make as parents because what science medicine tells us that it's a, that you're going to kill this child. Right. And so again, I, I think, you know, that that's just an, I don't have a, a clean answer to that question. Right. Uh, but, but I think, I think it's a really, really fascinating one. It's a fast, and it's also good for classical liberals and libertarians mm -hmm. to confront cases without obvious answers. We're too quick to sort of have, you know, someone, you're in a conversation with someone, they bring up some topic and your brain accesses, oh, here's my file on that topic. Right. Right. Yeah. right. There it is. Here's the libertarian answer. Right. right? Here's my and, answer and, on the Federal Reserve. Here's my answer right, exactly. on, on markets. Right. <laughs> right. And I think that's, you know, I think there's times when that's okay. But I think the problem is, is that it throws us into this mindset where, where, where we're not interested in conversation, we're not interested in talking, we're not interested in exchange, exchange interestingly enough, <laughs> and learning from it, right? We're, we're, what we're interested in is winning debate points and, you know, and, and crushing the opposition, uh, owning the libs, as the kids say today, right. uh, you know, and, and that's, that's not the liberal spirit, right? The liberal spirit historically has been one of uh, more open-ended, uh, of, 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 of humility, of recognizing we don't have all the answers. That's precisely why we think freedom's important, right? Is because we don't know everything and that's how we learn things. So, so I think issues like that, uh, I, I would, before I did the family work, I might've said this about environmental issues too. And I still think there's, that's true of environmentalism as well. There's some complicated issues there. Uh, and it's good for classical liberals and libertarians to be confronted with these issues to sort of recognize that, Hey, some stuff is really, really difficult. I, I, I'm, I, if I'm correct, you've had my buddy Jacob Levy on, uh, will have been on before this place probably. Yes. And this, Jacob's great at this stuff, right? I mean, his, his pluralism work has challenged liberals in much the same way.
in the same train of thought, like as you're saying, instead of pulling up, uh, you know, the, the file we have in our heads as classical liberals, libertarians saying, oh, here's the answer to that. Sometimes the answer doesn't lie within the past of, oh, this is the way the family was structured. This is the way the law worked at this time. As you said, as the realities of capitalism, quite frankly, push forward, whether we like it or not, the, the framework that we have around this must be looked at and, and at least skeptically and, and be under scrutiny. Right. We can't just say, here's the way it is. We've written it once and it works. Right. And we believe in economic competition as a discovery process. Well, guess what? You know, the, the judicial, the lawmaking process, the judicial process, the common law, these are these are discovery processes too, trying to, as we get new things come up, we try to figure out what the relevant precedents are and apply them and, and the law is going to change. And that's, that's all right. When it comes to things, and we we touched on it briefly, but I just want to drill into it a bit. When we comes to things like like wage labor, like we were, and you mentioned this in the book, um, on on net, these this is something that I, on from a value judgment perspective, you you think it's ultimately good. Some people would talk about uh, the progression of capitalism and how it has pulled families apart and things like that. But but when I read your book, I get the sense that you're ultimately saying on net, this has been a an a good thing. People, from yes. at least a classical liberal perspective, people have more individualism and more freedom to do more things. Absolutely, and and I think I think you know the things that classical liberal classical liberals value uh, are more able to be instantiated and executed in the post capitalism world with respect to family issues. But I th- but I think you can also broaden it out. I think I think the story is one that that to anyone who cares about sort of the well-being of, uh, of individuals and of especially of women and children uh, who understands this history will recognize that the changes that capitalism made possible were were incredibly important for women and for children if you're if your listeners have never seen Hans Rosling's the magic washing machine video uh, they need to and 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 maybe you can link it when you when you post this uh, but but because that gets at this point as well as anything ever did, and he does it, and he's not a libertarian. That's the best part. But mm. he recognizes uh, the way in which in sort of capitalism and industrialization and all these sort of things made possible machines that took the burden away from women and children, and it liberated them. Uh, and and that again, I would argue that was only possible in a world where there was freedom to trade and freedom to own capital and freedom to make profit and freedom to experiment and and look what it gave us it it it, it gave us uh, much improved lives for women and children Right. And specifically when it, when it comes to women, uh, like we were sort of touched on before, a lot of people think that it was ultimately like uh, political action that created the situation in the 50s and 60s that that counts as what some people would call the destruction of, of the family when reality in your book, for instance, you go into labor force participation rate for, for females was increasing well before yep. uh, we had discussions of, of uh, civil liberties and women's rights and, and things like that. So that's very interesting. Right. I mean, we, we know it both in the good way and the bad way from things like Mad Men, right? I mean, we mm. see women working in Mad Men. It, we also see the very problems that that sort of produced, right? One of the arguments is it wasn't that the women's rights movement enabled women to work. It was the experiences that women had in the world of work that produced the women's rights movement, right? And certainly the women of Mad Men, right? You can see, you can see why they would want, you know, for their daughters, certainly a, a better uh, a better world with more with more political protection people that may, may view uh, like once again these would be people that view the traditional family that you'd see in 1950s or 60s TV as, as the ideal how, how much of 
people who are proponent of that, do you think they're driven more by the actual economic facts of the situation or do you think they're more driven by this idea of the traditional order? Is is women entering the workforce uh, a bad thing to, to these people because they think they have a case to stand on when it comes to the economics of the situation or does that just sort of create economic friction with what people were used to in the 1950s and 60s where work was a place you could, uh, you know, have a, have a chat with, with with your buddies who also happen to be men and then, then go back to the wife, right? right. Like how, how how much of, of, of this sort of um, uh, dislike for the changes in the modern family do you think is, is more about just uh, the established order not really liking it that much? I think it's nostalgia. Hmm. And, I, and I mean that in the literal sense, of the, in the proper sense of the word, which is I think people look back and imagine that time as being much better than it actually was. Hmm. They, uh, the, it is easy for well-off white women to look back at it and sort of say, hey, things were pretty good and not see the troubles. I mean, they had troubles too, you know, sort of booze and pills and all that because, I mean, this is what produced Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique and all that. But but I think uh, the the bigger case was how was life back then for poorer women? How was life back then for people of color in the, you know, sort of, families and so on when you were being, you know, sort of redlined out of houses and, 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 uh, you know, uh, the law, wonderful, the wonderful book, the color of law, if you haven't read uh, when, the, when the law was basically saying, you can't live here, you have to commute 45 minutes because, because you're African American and, mm-hmm. and we're going to use the law to sort of make only these neighborhoods, uh, black. I mean, so, so, it, you know, life wasn't so great back then. I mean, we, we, the, the TV depiction of it glosses over all of the real challenges. And, and again, we can, you know, one of the things I, I write a lot about is how much better life is in terms of material stuff today for American families than it was back then, right? I mean, you know, think of all the things we have in our house. We take for granted how much, how much cheaper stuff is, right? Back, back, and, and, and the medical advances. I mean, you know, uh, I, I would be dead. <laughs> back in the 1950s by, by, by now for perhaps more than one reason. Uh, so all these things, right? L- life was not so great back then. And, and it's not, and it's not fair for people to just pick out this little slice of the family and say, well, look how much better that was. Well, you can't separate that from all these, from all these other things. Right. And, right. um, you know, and then when I'm even talking about domestic violence and, and, and all this, which was certainly worse then and not prosecuted and, and it, even as much as it is today. So, so yeah, I, I think it's pure nostalgia. It's a, and, and it's a, it, 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 for, for older people, perhaps it's a, it's a challenge to reorient themselves in a world where, as we were saying before, people are defining families in their own ways. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think, you know, I don't, it's not something I talk about in the book, but I think it's part of the same disorientation around gender we see with, with, with the trans movement and things like that, which is, which is, I, I don't know what it means to be a man or woman anymore. I don't know what it means to have a family, to be married, to be a parent anymore. Right. All of these categories that they thought were stable have been destabilized. And so I think it's easy to fall into the nostalgia trap of, well, at least back, at least back then you knew, right? You knew. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but, 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 right. Exactly. I think I literally saw someone on Facebook the other day say something like, well, you know, at least back in 2007, it was like, I'm like, oh, wow, we're already at that point where someone's yeah. like nostalgic about 10 years ago, you know? So it's interesting, as you said, the, well, it's a very powerful feeling. Yeah. And, and the, right. But, but it is true. I mean, one of the other things to think about here is how quickly 
the same sex marriage movement and and now the trans rights movement has boom right right just very quickly become so important. Uh, I, I started talking about and teaching about sort of same sex marriage in the mid '90s, right? And and for me, it was still legalizing it was still a long way away. Um, uh, it took you know it took 20 years, but almost, but we got there. Uh, and now these other things are just happening so, so quickly. And the turn on same, the, I mean, the turn on sort of public perception of same-sex marriage was like, boom, like this, right? And on, and on homosexuality in general, right? Uh, on LGBT issues in general was very quick. And it's interesting to think about why that was and whether, you know, sort of not so much maybe my generation, but the generations that immediately after were just so quick. And, and of course, I have kids in their tw- 20s today, and even my 13, 11-year-old stepkids, I mean, a 13 year old flies, flies a pride flag in a room, right? I mean, they, mm-hmm. they're already, uh, they don't see any, they don't, you know, they, they don't make any of these distinctions. Their friends are their friends and they're, are they male, female, are they trans, are they this? That doesn't matter, right? I mean, they're just, they're, they're people. And, and that's probably a good thing. It's, but it's mm-hmm. a confusing thing. And it, and then, and again, here too, the law is going to have to eventually change and deal with this after some protracted battles. And, and as you and you were just describing something we touched on before as well, which ultimately this is society first doing this due to a variety of circumstances and incentives. It's not that the fact that uh, gay marriage was legalized, that everyone said, oh, OK, this is fine. It, it was a, a long battle for a lot of people before that to get other people yep. either convinced or on board with this idea. And then it became something that was legally accepted. Right. And interestingly, too, I think, Again, the media played a role here, right? We we saw two things changed. I think that the, the LGBT issue so quickly, the same-sex marriage issue. Quickly. One, we began to see depictions of happy gay and lesbian people and couples on TV and in right. movies in ways that were like. And there be, there came a point when people were out of the closet, but we hadn't gotten to the marriage thing yet, where everybody had a gay or lesbian relative who they thought was a good person, right? Mm. Or friend who they thought was a good person. And and so, you know, again, it wasn't like the old days where you didn't know someone or you didn't know for sure. And the only depictions you saw were sort of, you know, libertine, whatever, right? But now, you know, you know Uncle Charlie's a good guy, right? And and so, and, and many of them were living with longtime partners, right? Uh, in, you know, in weird ways that you had, was difficult to explain to the kids, but the adults understood and mm-hmm. and see how happy they were and so you know the all of these things i think you know the, the the sort of presence in people's lives made it easy to say yeah i mean why should we deny them the same legal protections for a loving relationship that we benefit from i think there's a fundamental sense of fairness there that was able to be activated when the conditions were were right. And, and back to the point about capitalism and its arrangements, a lot of this came from economic arrangements, right? If you yeah. go to work every day and someone who happens to be gay yeah. is there and you actually get to know them because right. the office just needs good software developers and that's what they care right. about, that's a good thing. Right. And it's it's arranged in that way. That's right. And and it wasn't and it just began not to matter, right? What, you know, was single, married, gay, whatever. It didn't just didn't matter. Right. Could could you do the job? Were you a good person? Right. I mean, that's what and and I do think some of that's that sort of moral ethical change too, right? We we raised the sort of more generations of kids for whom we, the message was, hey, people are individuals. You got to treat them that way, uh, and and you can't categorize them. You can't, you can't treat them as a stereotype as a category. 
Great. And if individualism is something you value, then you definitely should view that as a good thing, these changes. Yeah. Um, so we're winding down here, and, and I always like to conclude it like this. We've, we've talked about a lot, so let's do our best to put a bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here today on how capitalism has shaped the modern family, if we can try and make it a everything we talked about if possible a little yeah. more concise uh i think i think the main takeaway is is to understand the role as you said just a bit ago that these economic changes played in making these social changes possible these social changes don't didn't just come from anywhere or because people suddenly changed their minds like turned on a dime about something though again there were some of those things were there and mattered but but that economic activity is important because it creates the conditions for people to be able to indulge in certain kinds of behavior that they wouldn't otherwise. So, so the transformation of marriage from, from an economic and family, from an economic relationship, from a production relationship to one about love, uh, I think is really important. And we, and we talked about the ways in which capitalism and wage labor and, and, and wealth made that possible. I think that's huge. And then once we see it becoming about love, a lot of the other things that we've talked about fall into place. Uh, why why same-sex marriage becomes uh, gets on the table, why uh, divorce rates go up, why we see families with fewer children and more investment in those kids, why we see the problems with that, like helicopter parenting and all that. So, so all of these things, right, are sort of outgrowths of the real, as I said, what Stephanie Kuntz called the real revolution, revolutionary moment which was when marriage became primarily about love. And so, so the lesson for me is it was economic change, primarily, not exclusively, that made it possible for marriage to be about love. And once marriage became about love, the modern family as we know it and, and the evolution of that family through the 20th and now 21st century uh, becomes much more clear and much more understandable uh, when you realize that. And I think, as we've said too, for me, this is all to the good. I mean, it's not, there, there's, there's still problems, but, but on that, it's all to the good. And we have a world now where our choices about who we marry and why we marry and what, how we form families and how we organize those families, many more options, much more freedom, much more ability to express our individuality. Uh, and, and, and in a way, evidence of how much more free and liberal in the classical liberal sense the world is when we get beyond the market and state and look at these other kinds of things. Great. I think that's a great way to end off our conversation today. Everyone listening, um, I think Steve and I had a great conversation today, but it still wouldn't do the, the full book, Hayek's Modern Family, Classical Liberalism and the Evolution of Social Institutions Justice. So I, I strongly recommend you, you, you guys check it out because uh, a lot of, as I said, a lot of our discussion here was based on that today. Uh, Steve Horowitz, thank you so much for talking with me today on The Curious Task. My pleasure, sir. I'll, I'll be happy to be back anytime. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine El Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. If you can't get enough of topics and conversations like these, then the podcast Economics Detective Radio is one you should definitely check out. Check out their website, economicsdetective.com, and click podcast. Go from there. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.